Welcome to Behind the Case, an ACG Case Reports Journal podcast, brought to you by the American College of Gastroenterology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Roberto Simons Linares, Editor-in-Chief for the ACG Case Report Journal and a GI Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. I would like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Rufat Mando, who is the author of a noteworthy case report published last month in our journal. He's currently a GI Fellow at the University of South Alabama. Rafi, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Roberto. It's my pleasure to be with you and to discuss this rather interesting case. Excellent. I'm very excited. It has a very catchy title. So Rafi's article (laughs) is entitled The Light at the End of the Tunnel. Rafi, could you please briefly summarize the case for the audience? Sure. So uh, we met with a 69-year-old lady who came into the hospital complaining of abdominal pain for the past three weeks, as well as worsening jaundice. And after a thorough workup, which included radiographic imaging, she was found to have dilated common bile ducts and then obstructing stone. Because of her previous surgeries, it made traditional ERCP uh, difficult and ultimately unsuccessful. So we had to move to a more creative technique. What we wound up doing was a stone removal using a novel technique called percutaneous transhepatic phalangoscopic lithotomy, which we will discuss throughout this podcast. Great. That was a great summary. Thank you. And I always encourage the audience to go to our journal's website and to read the full article and, you know, benefit from great images and details like in this case. Now, Rafi, what's a typical presentation of this disease and what was different in your case? Well, the typical presentation for someone with obstructed bile duct is abdominal pain and jaundice with laboratory values that are indicative of cholestasis. Some patients can develop features of ascending cholangitis on top of that, which is manifested by fevers, white count, vital sign changes. As you know, these are termed Charcot's triad when it's jaundice, fever, and rotor quadrant pain. And if you add hypertension and altered mental status to that, we call that Reynolds pentad. Our patient didn't actually have symptoms of ascending cholangitis or signs or symptoms of that, but she did have signs that were typical of cholecholithiasis. She did have jaundice and did have uh, some uh, jaundice on presentation. Now, how do you usually diagnose cholecholithiasis and how do you usually manage it? Stone is usually confirmed after imaging shows a dilated common bile duct. Uh, the dome uh, diameter of a common bile duct is five to six millimeters, but it depends uh, on the age of the patient. It also depends on the finding of a stone in the biliary tree. And if you combine the clinical findings that I've mentioned above, such as fevers, white count, jaundice, that kind of completes the clinical picture. The use has to do when someone first comes in as a rabbit show you the dilated common bile duct and it can even show you the stone. If the patient also has abdominal pain with that, it's usually a good idea to get a CT scan. You can also obtain an MRCP if neither one of those tests is useful or contraindicated, but it typically tends to have poor visualization at the level of the ampulla. When we do find the stone, there's really only one thing to do, and this is where the management comes into play, and that is to take the stone out. And so in 2019, the standard is to perform an ERCP or endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. As far as the timing of ERCP, it really depends on whether or not there's ascending cholangitis on top of the clinical picture, in which case it really should be performed sooner rather than later, typically within 12 hours. And then in your case, you mentioned that ERCP was not successful. Why was that? Could you explain that to the audience? 
Absolutely. So the first attempt at the RCP was unsuccessful because the patient actually had a previous ruin-wise surgery for morbid obesity. Mm-hmm. And when you alter the gut, you also change the direction of the scope and the, the technique in which the scope has to enter into the duodenum. So it essentially makes the gut longer. And when that happens, you lose a little bit of control with the RCP scope. So what you had to do was use a single balloon in the RCP. In other words, we had to use a special technique to reduce the bowel on top of the RCP scope, and that even further reduced the amount of control that we have. So ultimately, we were not able to cannulate the antilla because of alternate anatomy. Usually, the success rate for balloon ERCP is, you know, kind of like in the 50s, 60%. So it's not surprising right. there in these modified anatomy patients. Now, your team did was to perform a percutaneous transhepatic cholangioscopic lithotomy. Could you explain to the audience what is that procedure? What does that entail? Whenever we talk about percutaneous transhepatic cholangioscopic lithotomy, we're talking about using a cholangioscope or brand name spyglass to enter the biliary tree through the skin and the abdominal wall and go directly to the stone using a small camera. And then there are several techniques to, at that point, obliterate the stone, either using water or shock waves. In this case, the we used lithotripsy, which is shock waves delivered to the stone. You know, this procedure is not very common. I'm, I'm sure the audience may be wondering what are the complications of PTCSL, the procedure, and how does this compare to ERCP complications? Do they have like more complications, less? Could you tell us about that? With regards to the complications, it depends on who's performing the procedure. So if you take someone who is proficient in both ERCP and PTCSL, which is the procedure that we performed, then the complication rates are actually equal between the two. Both procedures have a, a higher chance of complications when there's altered anatomy. So if a patient has had previous surgery, no matter which type of procedure you choose, the patient is, is at a higher risk. And pancreatitis can still occur, but it's unknown how common it is in PTCSL as compared to ERCP. But the other complications include pericatheter bileak, which happens in less than 16% of the patients, hemorrhage and hemobilia, which occurs in 2% of patients, but up to 13% of patients in some of the literature that I was looking at. And then septic shock and pancreatitis, as we discussed, uh, they're up to 5%, which is similar to ERCP. But it really does depend on the operator because a skilled person in this procedure will have low rates of complications, whereas someone who's not very well trained in this procedure will have higher rates of complications. Very operator dependent. Now, you know, I'm sure the audience is wondering about the procedure in detail. Could you walk us through, summarize how is this procedure performed? This procedure was actually performed in two sessions, and we performed both sessions the same way. So at both sessions, the radiology team was present with us, and the patient was sedated using general anesthesia with airway protection. And under sterile technique, we took the end of the existing biliary tube and cut it, and a wire was passed through this biliary tube until it was in the biliary tree. And then a 12 French sheath was then advanced over the wire into the common bile duct. Mm-hmm. And we used fluoroscopic guidance in order to do that. Once we had the wire in place and the sheath in place, then at that point we could perform a glandiogram, mm-hmm. which in this case showed us that the patient had dilated intrahepatic and extrahepatic ducts with an abrupt cutoff at the level of the distal complement bile duct. So what we did at that point was we took the sheath, 
and pushed it all the way to the cutoff in the common bile duct. And at that point, we inserted the spyglass through the sheet alongside the wire. So the, the spyglass doesn't go on top of the wire, it just goes next to it. With this, we're able to visualize the stone and we were able to take a picture of it and it can be seen in the full case report. And at that point, we apply a lithotripsy, which is essentially energy shock waves that are delivered directly to the stone, which breaks up the stone into multiple pieces. And then we removed the spyglass and inserted a balloon and inflated the balloon and used the balloon to push these broken stones into the small bow. What type of balloon do you use? We use a five French Fogarty balloon. And then you push it down, right? You didn't remove them out. You push them into the duodenum. <laughs> Correct. You push them into the duodenum rather I than see. taking them out of the patient through the uh, PTC. So I'm curious about two sessions. This could not be possible in one session. Was there any particular reason? Yeah, actually, this was planned as one session. However, when we went back in the second time, we found that there were more stones. And so we decided to repeat the procedure. But you are correct. This procedure can be done in one session. I see. So you brought the patient back to verify if it's all clear and then you found more stones. Okay. Exactly. And then what are the advantages and disadvantages that you can point out about PTCSL? The most important one, I think, is ease of access whenever the patient has altered anatomy. The second is having a high technical success rate whenever there's a skilled operator who's performing the procedure. Mm -hmm. And also, it has similar complications to ERCP and less complications than some of the other more advanced techniques that are typically performed in these types of cases, such as lab-assisted ERCP, which would have been another option in this patient if we had not performed this particular procedure. Yeah, there is not much data on complications. I'm sure the audience is wondering why you didn't perform an EUS-guided approach in this case, you know, especially you know, now that we perform EUS-guided edge procedure to access the ampulla or biliary access. Why you didn't explore EUS-guided approach? Those are great options for gaining access into the tree, either directly into the common bile duct or transgastric approach. What made the PTCSL a more appealing avenue of treatment for this patient was actually the fact that she already had a PTC drain. Yeah, so yeah, had like... she not already had that, then we probably would have done edge procedure on her. But since yeah. she was already 50% of the way through the PTCSL, yeah. uh, we decided that uh, we might as well just use that. And with the help of our IR colleagues, remove mm -hmm. the stone directly with the visualization. Yeah, you had an access route already. What would you say was the most challenging part of this case? Well, we actually kind of talked about it already, but it was really deciding what procedure to pick. And mm -hmm. once you have a patient who's already a little bit complicated in the sense that they have modified gut anatomy, then you really have limited options. But all those options have their own sets of complications, all their sets of uh, pros and cons. And considering which one of those things to choose was the complicated and the challenging part. But as I mentioned earlier, ultimately, we decided that if the patient already had access to their biliary tree, then there was no reason to try to gain access through another method. And that's why we wound up using the PTCSL. Now, to summarize the case, what would you say are the take-home points of this case? Well, obviously, I would say always keep percutaneous uh, access with spyglass in your back pocket whenever you are confronted with a patient who has cholecalcobiphysis, but you're unable to access the ampulla. 
the other take-home point I would say is to make friends with the interventional radi radiology colleagues at your institution because they can be very helpful when it comes to managing these types of patients. And finally, and this applies to any kind of case, is always to think outside the box. We are, as medical students and residents and fellows, trained to think in an organized fashion, and that works 99% of the time. But there is that small percentage where we always have to stop and think about what are some other things outside of the box that we can do to help the patient. Great. That was an excellent discussion, Rafi. Thank you. And as I always like to ask a non-medical question to get to know our guests a bit better. So Rafi, tell us something about you that most people don't know. <laughs> That's an interesting question. Uh, if I, I've been asked that question several times in my life already. I feel <laughs> like I've run out of things uh, that people don't know about me. But uh, one thing that I picked up recently in the last few years actually was building computers. So this is a hobby I picked up to just take uh, different computer components and put them together. And I've actually started to do that for some of my friends and family members. And I use pretty advanced techniques to make the computers very cool, in including water cooling techniques and fans and things like that. So it's kind of fun to build them and then to give them away or sell them to friends and family. <laughs> so that's something I don't think most people know about me because it doesn't come up. <laughs> no, that's pretty interesting. That's great. Well, thank you, Rafi, for joining us again. And thank you to the audience for listening and until the next episode.